We're back to being a normal country. We're back to being a country. The British Dream Podcast. Join us. Powerful people. As we launch our despicable acts like these. And the sickening and barbaric politics. What I hate about this is that it's so violent. When the next phase of this disaster comes, they will come for you. Hello and welcome to what might be the last podcast you ever listened to, The British Dream. We're recording this from our studio bunker in Guam, where we have front row seats for the end of the world. Or maybe we're already in heaven, aka Old Street Weatherspoons. Since our last podcast, the prospect of a nuclear war has edged a bit closer thanks to a vicious war of words between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. Maybe they should just take a holiday. That's what politicians this side of the Atlantic have been doing, meaning we haven't heard too much from them, which is kind of nice. My name's Simon Childs. I do home affairs at vice.com. Today I'm joined by two of the finest minds in British politics. Welcome to Gav Haynes and Sam Chris. He has been very threatening. Try to calm down. They will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power. And behave like an adult. This week it's all about asking the right questions. Which set of internet meme peddlers is going to capture the youth vote? Could we actually be approaching the end of the world? And how should we spend our last hours on this earth? But first, where is the Conservative Party right now? And how does it get its mojo back? They're sort of in the doldrums right now, aren't they? Uh, everyone has has gone on holiday, and, and it's a time for big think pieces. And uh, even the people on manoeuvres have kind of uh, shifted off. So it really could go one of several ways, depending on who gets the the whip hand in the autumn. Um, but where should they go? I mean, they just need to. You know, there are lots of good arguments for market capitalism, uh, but. They need to make those within, I guess, that the, the centre has shifted slightly more towards um, a more regulated version of that. The Telegraph ran a piece by Nick Timothy yesterday, which I thought was quite a bold move because it was, uh, I think it was under the banner, like, ideas to win. Nick Timothy, the sort of discredited former Theresa May aide who's sort of credited with completely fucking everything up and losing Who, the election. He's now getting a, uh, a column with the Sun and the Times because you can, you can never fail too hard in British media. Yeah, that is so true. I'm, I mean, I feel like the problem with the Tories is that they've ex- exhausted a lot of their traditional postures. You know, the Cameron era was this kind of like new Toryism, like a kind of replica of new Labourism, uh, pitching to the centre, um, you know, hug a hoodie, stinging economic cuts and uh, neoliberalism. And it turns out that people didn't really like that. So they kind of, with Theresa May, they pitched right back to a kind of... Uh, kind of parochial old England kind of old Toryism um, uh, you know with, with a kind of uh, slightly unpleasant homophobe at the head uh, you know just just kind of uh, trying to recapture that kind of lost raw traditional Tory spirit uh, and it turns out the voters don't really like that that much either uh, you know they're at something of, of an impasse what I'd suggest is maybe uh, instead of old and new Tory they could uh, create something quite new and fresh maybe alt Tory uh, yeah, yeah, like kind of uh, based around uh, upsetting internet memes, and uh, you can pick a very, very minor racial group to be incredibly racist against. Mm-hmm. Uh, possibly the Armenians, if they just uh, started talking con- constantly and consistently about the uh, Armenian global conspiracy, mm-hmm. uh, making memes about Armenians. Uh, that that could recapture some of that populist energy in a way that wouldn't actually require them to do anything good in the world. It would be quite zeitgeisty to yeah. be like randomly racist against a small group. I feel like that's very like 2017 <laughs> on point. But yeah, I guess so in terms of that, like they've exhausted this like Cameron-ish like new tourism, went back to May, 
recapitulation of old Toryism. They're both kind of exhausted. What are they going to do? We don't know. They don't know. <laughs> we are introduced as the finest minds in Britain, um, and you know, no one really has any any clear idea. And Theresa May clearly doesn't have any idea. I mean, she's just uh, hold down the bunker. And I think more mm. to the point, there's nothing that she can do at the moment to re uh, revive her brand. It, it seems like managerialism is basically the whole game now, and, and holding the ship together. And, and that's a, a sort of historically a consistently good posture for the Tory party to just be like we're the ones who are dealing with it we're getting on with things yeah, yeah, yeah. but I, I feel like people really didn't like that you know like uh, like both um, Cameronism and Mayism were kind of variations on the line that there is no alternative that that we're the only people who who, who can be like, like we are the establishment you have to trust us to do it whether it was the economy or Brexit uh, and and people don't actually trust the Tories uh, on, on that kind of level uh, so you know if, if I were put in charge of rebranding the Tories I would try to rebrand them as the alternative while they're in government how do you do well, they, <laughs> Theresa May from within Theresa yeah. May tried yeah. to do that though seriously yeah, she, well, yeah she, yeah, she tried to to kind of capture that. Oh, are you sick of political correctness and all those snooty liberals in their metropolitan enclaves? No, but she made a speech about the gig economy, and that was like her big relaunch. Mm. And uh, she was like, "I'm committed to as committed yeah. to change as I ever was," or, or, or something like, I'm, "I'm even more enthusiastic for change now." And it's like having just run an election campaign, being like nothing must change ever that's the whole point mm. of my election campaign and then like that got fucked she's like I'm now committed to change well this is the problem with the, with the whole strategy is that she had all these fine words when she first came out stood on the steps of Downing Street as so many prime ministers have done before her and said you know um, blessed are the peacemakers blah blah um, <laughs> and uh, then I, I nothing in, happened there was no she was saying something horrifying directly that. into my ear uh, <laughs> I, I, I definitely heard ageless whisperings at that moment <laughs> Yeah. Yes, incantations in in Aramaic, <laughs> I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but no concrete proposals came out of that, and everything that sort of did start to come out of that um, ultimately got watered down by the the, the U-turn queen as she became. You know, like. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, like, if you're trying to present yourself as an alternative while you're in power, and if you're trying to present yourself as a change maker while not actually doing any change, that's quite difficult. But I feel like she could actually take a lesson from across the Atlantic there, from uh, Donald Trump, who's essentially like running his leadership as if he were in opposition, uh, constantly complaining about all the forces that aren't letting him do what he wants. Uh, I mean, the problem is that the European superstate is a great excuse to not be doing what you want. Oh, we can't do it. It's the bloody bureaucrats in Brussels. But we're leaving now. It's kind of stymies that whole thing. She tried to do it with the uh, kind of feeble rump opposition in Parliament before the election, uh, which is another reason why calling the election was probably a terrible idea for her, because then she'd actually have to face up to her own power and responsibilities. Um, I, I mean, I, I guess now she could, you know, do a Trump and start attacking her, her own party constantly and consistently. I mean, it's worked for Corbyn. The thing keeping the whole thing ticking over is just a pure, like, dread at Corbyn from the Conservative Party because mm. like for the first time in a while like, they've, they've always hated Labour obviously that's the point but like they're really genuinely like terrified that they, they think they're staring the, down the barrel of like a fucking Bolshevik re revolution the reason why May's not gone already is because there's a I think there's a kind of acknowledgement coming from them that they don't want to rock the boat too much right now because that I think they don't want another election mm. that's another thing Nick Timothy said in that column I mentioned he, he kind of just kind of glibly put in like oh well we're safe from Corbyn for another five years obviously the line is you know that there won't be another election anytime soon which was kind of assumed after 
the most recent election that there might be. They're obviously going to try and push this line that no, 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 there, there won't be for five years. Fixed term Parliament Act, like we're going to be in government for, for ages now. And I think, yeah, they're just trying to like steady the ship. And there's a kind of hive mind like, okay, we hate Theresa very, very much, but we really can't do anything about it right now because that would trigger an election. And then <laughs> there'd be J- Jeremy Corbyn and he will like yeah. you know expropriate our mansions and that's terrifying well i mean i mean weirdly you know tories do seem to function by consensus a lot of the time like you know within um internally within like the parliamentary party there you i mean i've i've commented on this many times before but like while labor is like constantly scrapping among among each other and people jostling for position the Tories are all like kind of terrifyingly united behind a single person and then suddenly they all turn on them and then they're terrifyingly united behind someone else. Mm. So I think they're what they're probably doing at the moment is just really hashing out the details uh, for uh, who's going to be the next leader and when it's going to be David Davis. Um, and then and then once that's done, they're just going to move suddenly in the night and before you know it, he'll be prime minister. Yeah, it, like, like the last Conservative leadership election had, I think, maybe... Three or four hours of, uh, of of frantic maneuvering as uh, Boris and Gove and uh, and all of that lot announced themselves and then were mysteriously picked off by hidden snipers uh, and then immediately afterwards there was Theresa May's coronation and a woman who most people had never heard of was suddenly running the country and it's going to be the same thing this time with David Davis I mean my money's on David Davis just because like he's just such a Tory isn't he he really sits well in that little pocket like he is he's an ultimate consensus candidate so it's, uh... he does have maybe one of the things Theresa May doesn't has which is quite a sort of and I, I like hesitate to say this but a kind of actually like easy human charm like, yes, for a politician. He for a politician. He's for the only politician, politician I've ever like um, interviewed or attempted to interview or whatever who is who is just genuinely quite like oh hello and like quite nice, like <laughs> really quite like, affable, as opposed to all the other ones who are like very wary and scared of you and like are like a journalist shit, yeah, and, like like shut down into media mode. And he was just like chummy. He or has whatever. that very Ken Clarkish thing of actually answering the question in this sort of bluff, offhand manner that, that comes across as quite unflappable in interviews. You know, people can stick their worst questions on him and he'll just say, oh, it's a few minor local difficulties, a bit of piffle and uh, just, <laughs> you know, sail on through by being as direct as, as he needs to be. I, I mean, I would say he's the kind of person who you can basically find anywhere walking down the street. It's just that he's in politics. <laughs> yeah. So so he, he kind of, he, he looks really affable by comparison. But, you know, I think some of the effusive praise that's given to him, even by like like liberal journalists who kind of describe his kind of deep charisma, um, you know, that line, he's the only man who can swagger while sitting down, mm. uh, which was, I think, it's not him. I think that line was first applied to a boxer in the 1950s. I think people need to kind of uh, simmer down a little with the praise for David Davis. Otherwise, it's going to be another one of the Theresa May effect where people blab constantly about what a firm hand she is in, on the rudder. And then when she reveals herself to actually be a screeching incompetent. Um, it is alarming how little we know about our political leaders mm. a lot of the time, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, one thing that sticks in my mind and craw about Davis was when he resigned in 2008 and staged that that sort of completely bizarre by-election on oh, the yeah, issue yeah. of civil liberties. Oh, which yeah. is an important issue. I take nothing away from it, but um, uh, no one else stood against him and then he <laughs> no was uh, he rose again on the third day and uh, <laughs> continues to be a, an MP and, and it seemed at that point that he'd written his own political 
terrible epitaph, but uh, Worm but really a, turns in all sorts of strange ways. It's a weird thing to do when you're in opposition. Um, yeah. yeah. But, uh, well, I mean, Zach Goldsmith tried to do the same thing and came hilariously unstuck. <laughs> So yeah, while the Tories are sort of thrashing about slightly confusingly, um, Jeremy Corbyn's in his never-ending campaign mode, kicking off another worldwide tour in Cornwall. Do we think this kind of endless campaign Corbyn has legs, or is it going to kind of lose its novelty? I mean, Corbyn's good on campaign. He's a great campaigner. Mm. Um, and while the Labour Party is in campaign mode, some of its more restive elements tend to simmer down a little and uh, and kind of get behind the leadership a bit more. And, and, you know, as long as he kind of keeps on pushing the line, there could be a general election any moment. He's less likely to face unrest from within the party, which, like, unbelievably is still happening. Uh, mm. I, I genuinely don't understand why. Uh, you know, all of, all of the people who, for the past... Uh, past two years we're kind of going um, no we don't oppose Corbyn's politics it's just that they're completely unelectable you know we don't want to be wiped out in the next election um, I think the mask has kind of come off now and they've just been revealed as total anti-socialists which you know they should have just been open with immediately so we can deselect them <laughs> anti-socialists that's a term I haven't heard before <laughs> I think there was talk of another centrist party Yes, yeah. this has been bubbling up again, yeah. Well, yeah. Which one was, was it? It was um, David oh. Davis's press guy, who also worked for George Osborne, yeah. who yeah, announced on Twitter that he thought uh, there should be a new centrist party, which um, The Guardian reported on, despite the fact that not a day goes by without some idiot spad announcing that there should be a new centrist party. But they're interested in, in him talking about it because they're hiring him. Um, okay. <laughs> Uh, no, it's, it's, a, it's a ridiculous idea. It's a busted flush. Like, there is an anti-Brexit centrist party. It's the Lib Dems. Um, and, the, you know, like, like a new centrist party wouldn't just have to draw support from Labour and the Tories, who don't tend to agree on a lot. It would also have to find a way to not be the Lib Dems. Yeah, I mean, it's peak silly season uh, the, when you get round to uh, this week's anti-Brexit party. Yeah, it's a busted flush. Yeah, there's also going to be this anti-Brexit march at the, outside the Tory conference, which sounds potentially good, but then it's going to be uh, it's going to have Alistair Campbell speaking at it. People most against Brexit are also just like the fucking worst. And like Brexit is bad, but the people who hate Brexit are like just as bad. People need to understand that you don't change people's minds on Brexit by eating cheese in front of them. Uh, and for the Remain lot, that seems to be the only strategy going. Every single anti-Brexit demonstration involves uh, a big celebration of fromage uh, and a bunch of people bringing out the brie and eating the brie and saying how much they love the brie. And I, I as someone who, who loves French cheese so much, it's genuinely destroying my health. I can understand this, but it is not a good political strategy to say, I like cheese, you mustn't have what you want because I like cheese. Yeah, I mean, I guess the whole point about this Corbyn tour is that it'll create headlines when the Tories have nothing much to say. They're, they're in this, like, crisis mode and he'll be, like, on the news talking to people about his policies. And now the narrative behind that is that, as you said, he's good at that. So probably he'll just be, like, capturing headlines for some 
incredibly grateful Westminster journalists who are like, <laughs> yeah. please, I just need some fucking coffee. <laughs> Fuck me, like. It's uh, Ziggy Stardust at the Hammersmith Apollo. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, he's got uh, he's got a lot going for him, I guess, as, at this particular moment because he finally has some policies now after the election. He can go out and and celebrate the fact that you know people have been saying, oh, you're thin on the detail. There's nothing behind you, and and now we'll actually he has some things i mean like also he, he'll be on the ground which um you know like uh, like during the election uh constituencies where corbyn visited saw a far higher um surge in the in the labor swing so you know i, I mean i'm sure this is a ploy to the ploy for the headlines to some extent but um you know i mean like these are also people who are conceivably going to be voting labor at the next election whenever it happens uh and you know, like it contrasts pretty well with Theresa May's approach, which was to uh, bring 20 people into a kind of cavern of doom and then shoot the camera angles so it looked like everyone loved her. I think Theresa May should go on tour right now. <laughs> <laughs> a walking tour of the British Isles. She seems to like walking a lot. Can, Apparently that's uh, where she has all, the, all the, her most reflective yeah. moments. <laughs> and she's won a by-election in the Lake District already, so maybe just continue up there. That could be her new, the new core Tory vote is ramblers. <laughs> just people that she meets in the foothills. <laughs> Like, like Jesus or something. You know. <laughs> we would completely abolish it because we were unaware of the size of that time. John McDonald has established or has established a working party to look at this point. So the last election saw a relatively high youth vote. A few weeks ago, Vice UK were at the Manchester International Festival. We held an event in the Royal Albert Hall about politics. As part of the event, academic Michael Bruter, Momentum's Beth Foster Og, and politic man about the place, Ransom Bantz, all spoke to Vice's Sam Wilson about young people and voting. But before we hear from them, here's the Labour MP for Bury North, James Frith. So the Labour vote this time felt much more solid in, in Bury North, which I mentioned as a, a marginal seat, kind of weather vane seat. People were, you know, there was this phrase last time, wasn't there, about the shy Tories. Um, and I think we had, a, we had a bit more of a sort of proud Labour vote this time. Um, but clearly, much of what the politics and the campaign did was cross over to some of the Green vote, some of the youth vote as well. Um, but make no mistake, you know, door knocking is as old as the, the hills, but numbers door knocking is, is the thing to really concentrate on. And the, the app that you're talking about, the, the Marginals app, that Momentum did was hugely um, impressive. It was a very simple idea, but it was hugely effective to enable a new generation of activists that, you know, are brought to politics. I'm, I'm all, you know, I'm totally cool with a kind of flippant approach to, to serious issues if it gets you engaged in the issues. Um, you know, chat shit, get elected. Well, fine but get elected, you know, and, and make the changes that you want to see. Because if actually, if people are angry, that's fine, yeah? But you've got to take anger as an energy. Apathy is the enemy, right? Apathy is the enemy. If people are angry, you can work with that because that's, a, that's, an, uh, that's an energy, not the enemy. And so you get to a doorstep situation where somebody is angry, you can kind of turn that and you can point that in the right direction. So, you know, too often in the Labour Party or in politics, um, or in just sort of, you know, pub chat, which is definitely the chat shit bit. Yeah. The pub chat stuff is all very well, but you know what? If you're not turning out, you're not turning up, then you ain't going to change anything. I, I think the narrative is generally true that young people uh, 
didn't use to vote very much. The part of the narrative that is not true is that most people thought that young people were apathetic, and that was never the case. What was really the case was that young people were so disgruntled by the political offer that they couldn't be bothered to vote. And I think that in the last two votes, well, two big votes that we had, both the referendum last year and the general election this year, young people finally thought that they had, they needed, if you want, to mobilize and to go to vote. Beth, you're very involved in momentum and campaigning. I mean, I know this was, I guess this was the first general election that you could vote in, but was there something about the way you were going about campaigning that felt different, that there was, you know, if you're looking for the reason why more young people voted this time, was there something that you saw? Yeah, I think we can look at it in two ways. Firstly, more young people voted because they had a, they had a party and a leader they could vote for that offered a real alternative. And, you know, young people have been massively impacted by the Tory policies, um, whether it's to do with housing or the NHS. Um, you know, there isn't youth issues. There's all these issues affect people's lives. And, so, and we had a Labour Party and a leader who not only represents a kind of kind and honest politics that you can believe in because he's different and he speaks honestly and he understands people, but also a genuinely transformative manifesto which had politics um, and policies that were like both common sense and would actually change people's lives. And people really recognise that. And I think also we had more young people get involved in the general election campaign than ever before. And that was because we were campaigning in a way where people could see, if I do this thing, I'm going to have a real impact. Because... How do they see that? What's different? So, I mean, we've just, we've had, you know, the whole media thought, you know, they have, they probably have a ground operation that doesn't really do much because it's all about the top messaging. But we had, um, we, Momentum Activists had over a million conversations with people on the doorstep. And what we were doing is we were training people on how to actually have persuasive conversations where they understood the politics and they understood what motivates people to vote. Yeah, so door knocking is definitely as old as time, but what we were doing is it wasn't... Normally, when you go door knocking, you're collecting data, so you're finding out how people intend to vote so that you can then remind them to vote on the day. But what we were doing was teaching people how to have persuasive conversations. So when they knocked on the door, they said, instead of just saying, hi, I'm from the local Labour Party, who are you voting for? They said, hi, I'm from the local Labour Party. I just was wondering what issues matter to you. And then we were teaching people how to have those persuasive conversations where they could take that issue and really say, well, look, we can offer an alternative that will make, that, that make your situation better. So people could see that going out door knocking wasn't just something that everyone you know, who's part of the Labour Party should do because that's what the Labour Party activists do, but that it had an impact and that they could persuade people. But Michael, I'm wondering how, you know, we've kind of heard some different things here about is it getting shit done? Is it about a more kind of light way of talking about politics? Is it about, you know, being able to make an emotional connection to someone on the doorstep? Can you talk a bit about the voters that you spoke to after the election and, and kind of what reasons they give for voting the way they did? Yeah, sure. I mean, there are basically two things. Uh, the first one is that you actually need to get young people to vote from the beginning. Because what our research shows is that if you go and vote in one of the first two elections of your life, you become a participant forever. But if you abstain in those first two elections, then you become a chronic abstentionist. So the number one reason why so many people voted this time is because many young people voted last time in the referendum on EU membership. And our figures are that once you start controlling for registration, 
turnout for 18 to 24 year old uh, last year was about 64%, which is actually very close to the average, especially when you think that the government organized that vote in the summer holiday when students could technically not vote in many cases because you know, the, many students couldn't even vote postally because they didn't have an address where they could actually receive the postal ballot anymore. Uh, and so that, that's the first thing. The second is to think about the reason that young people gave for why they voted, why they bothered to mobilize. And again, our results are, are that for this particular election, turnout for 18 to 24 year old was actually the same as for the general population once you control for registration, which is enormous, almost unprecedented in the UK. And they give three reasons which differentiate them from the rest of the population. The first one is that they really want change. And change is a magic word if you want to be able to keep young people into politics. It's 16% more young people wanting change than the rest of the population. The second reason was that they wanted to fight against Brexit. And again, as I said, for young people, there has been a big electoral sequence which started last year and which continued this year after many of them felt effectively stabbed in the back by the rest of, or part of the rest of British society. And this is something that we must recognize that young people felt alienated in the result of that vote. And the third one is that they wanted to express frustration, which is one of the big topics of study of one of my colleagues called Sarah Harrison, and probably the most important thing you need to understand if we want to understand what young people really think about the way democracy works at the moment. Everything else, personality of the leader, policy, stability, is pretty much in line with the rest of the population. But those three, that's what gets people, young people, to the polling station. Is there a danger, you know, I, Momentum's membership is quite young in itself. I know there's a, kind of, but there's a lot of young people coming into politics, a lot of young people joining the Labour Party, and uh, a lot of young MPs joining in this round. Is there a, a worry about uh, enthusiasm over experience? Do you think that young people can set politics on a, on a mistaken route? Well, they've stuffed it up so much. Like, what's the worst we can do? Let's be honest. So, yeah, why not? And in your, I mean, do you think things like Grind for Corbyn and the absolute boy memes and Chat Get Elected and all of that stuff, do you think that does make a difference, maybe not even at a surface level? It makes a massive difference because people that generally weren't interested are now interested. So I don't see why not. I know, I know they were sending a lot of my stuff like to colleges and like unis, etc., etc. and people are watching them. So why not? Otherwise, no one's going to get interested. Like, no one wants to watch PMQs. Like, do you know what I mean? It's boring. Like, even for me. Like, you, mean you see a video, it's like 45 minutes and you think, nah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Just wait for the highlights online, and it's still crap. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, you can't make you can't the make it you can't highlights. make it exciting. Do you know what I'm saying? You can't really make it exciting. So, you know what I mean, it's just like a bunch of rich kids in the playground. So, um, I think definitely putting it in a way that other people can enjoy it is the way forward. The language that they use and the way it's all put together is put that way to alienate us anyway. Do you know what I'm saying? So. Yeah, I think the way to getting these votes and to getting these people involved is by having a filter. And that's what we had during this election that wasn't there during Brexit, which is why it went the way it went. I would have liked to take more questions, but uh, we're on a very strict schedule. But I'd just like to thank everyone so much for coming. James and Beth and Michael and Ransom Bantz. I never know how... Just Rants, just Rants. <laughs>
That was recorded in Manchester. There's a whole podcast dedicated to the festival, actually. If you check out Vice UK's other podcast, yeah, but it's not as simple as that. Sticking with the youth stuff, how much momentum has the Mogmentum movement picked up? It's quite a, a niche movement still, I'd say. I mean, it sort of crops up on the peripheries of the internet, but um, mm. it's fun. It's funny. Yeah. And um, I guess if you wanted to pull some serious truth out of it, Jacob Rees-Mogg is a man who, as we were talking about at the start of the, of the show, you know, what, what does the Conservative Party do, need to do to reinvigorate itself? Well, it needs to start talking about conservatism. And he seems to be able to articulate a lot of the, the key points of that ideology in a way that is unfiltered, unmediated, a lot like Mr. Corbyn. Hmm. Um. Well, I mean, like, the kids do like Jacob Rees-Mogg, but they're a very particular type of kids. They're the kids who wore, like, a three-piece tweed suit to school when they were 16. Uh, they're, they're the middle-class kids who say, bruv, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, they're, they're the ones who eventually graduate into wearing a, a two-piece suit, but with a bow tie uh, and, and loudly insisting to anyone who listened how the market will mean that their bowel movements become much more regular. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I do, think, I do think it's genuinely like, I agree that at the moment it's very niche and it will only appeal to like six form Tories. But like, it does seem to be the first kind of conservative foray into the world of like online banter and like lols, which I think actually played a serious part in like in the election, like because you had the Tories with Facebook videos, dark, scary videos about Jeremy Corbyn being an evil man, and then Labour had less money to spend on that stuff. But just like there's fucking memes everywhere yeah. and like grind for Corbyn and all that shit. This does seem to be a attempt to articulate Tory policy in a way that isn't from Theresa May doing an awful speech. Weirdly like grassroots, which also kind of seems somewhat anathema yeah. to conservative and politics. It's not necessarily, I mean, it might start with a, a six-form Tory kids, but uh, there is a fascination in watching Jacob Rees-Mogg. He's very watchable in the way that Boris once was and maybe still is. Um, and people will just get, you know, sucked into him as a sort of a cultish figure and then start to figure, get come into dialogue with what he's actually saying later on. You know, I think it has momentum beyond just that. Sort of small appeal. I mean, I'd say the Labour's campaign in the last election wasn't really a kind of banter campaign or, or momentum. I don't campaign. mean the whole campaign yeah, was yeah, banter. Yeah, but, like, like, but I, I mean, would say even, even, even the kind but, of the bantery element, I think you could actually say uh, was more kind of like ironic post banter kind of thing. Uh, you know, the, the the whole point is that Jeremy Corbyn is actually quite a, an unassuming, unbanterous kind of guy, um, right. and 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 by kind of elevating him into this position of ironic laddom, uh, you know, the whole big bag of cans with the lads kind of thing. <laughs> it, it, kind of, it kind of works as a kind of, uh, iron, almost a kind of ironic commentary on the way that politicians are marketed in that, in that way. Uh, so, I mean, if the Tories do go with Reese Morgan and do go with a kind of, um, oh, if they try and turn him into some pop culture hero, like it would be the equivalent of doing those memes that are just like kind of really large text on a picture of an animal now that all the kids' memes are, are the word suck with a double C. Yeah. Um, I, th I think in true Tory fashion, they would end up being disastrously behind the curve. But I mean, I mean, I guess my point with the whole the whole like election meme culture thing is that if you were young and like supported Corbyn, it felt like there was a gang to get involved in, and it was kind of almost quite like cool, or at least you were like in on some kind of zeitgeisty point, and there was a language there for you to articulate mm. your views. And let's say you were a young Tory who like lives on the internet and stuff. What would you say? Like, what, how would you articulate that? You wouldn't. There was nothing to say or do. What, what, what would I say? Say, yeah, actually, the free market <laughs> can solve all of our problems. <laughs>
Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you can. There was no meme to say that. And now, yeah, like, I don't know. Bogmentum could be. You know, everything's a fucking culture war now, right? Yeah. Well, this is it. Yeah, and they've got a, a toe in that world. And, and to that extent, Jacob Rees-Mogg doesn't need to be a political figure. He's just a talismanic figure. He just uh, represents a lot of those things in an amusing, sort of slightly ironically detached way. I think why Corbyn has such a strong support among young people wasn't it, was that he wasn't just, you know, um, clearly articulating a certain ideology, which he was, but he was also offering something material for young people. Um, and well, I mean, for a lot of people, he 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 has a, uh, an, a an actual offer to make. You know, your life doesn't need to be this shit. Uh, I don't know if Jacob Rees-Mogg can actually marshal something quite as effective as that. I think he's kind of hamstrung by his own politics in that way. Yeah, which are quite quite like fervently on the right of the Conservative Party, right? Famously, he said on the, on Have I Got News For You, I take the Catholic whip. I think, I think Ian Hislop said that to him. But yeah, you know, he is um, high church and high Tory, yeah. Also, there's going to be a Tory Glastonbury one here, which could be another exciting innovation for right. making the Conservatives cool again, mm. I think. Although, I think there's argument about whether that's like a tautology. I think Glastonbury <laughs> is quite Tory anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Tory music festival, you could just call it a music festival. Yeah, um, yeah. Although, I mean, I'm hoping that this one's less a Tory Glastonbury and maybe more of a Tory fire festival. Or like that uh, Why Not festival the other week, which I think uh, quite nicely answered its own question. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, like, like the problem with like uh, blue sky Tory ideas is that the, the essence of Toryism is, you know, keep the thing that we have now. Um, and there's only so many ways in which you can articulate it. There are only so many things you can find that we have that you don't want to change or that you want to put back to how they were 50 years ago. One of the things that is changing that they are freaking out about apparently is home ownership because owning a home is a sort of bastion of Toryism. Because it kind of just economically is, makes you a Tory. Yeah. Whereas if you own a house, you're like, shit, I've got a mortgage yeah. now. And so, yeah, they're like super freaking out about no one owning a home. Well, yeah, I mean, they didn't want to build council houses because they breed Labour voters. But now they're also creating a kind of, uh, well, yeah, with the incredibly high house prices. Um, I mean, like, like obviously the one solution, uh, and I guess you could present this at the Conservative Ideas Festival, is to return Britain to a kind of 19th century property-owning democracy where you need to own your own house or at the very least have a mortgage before you can vote. So while, you know, British politics has been in this kind of weird slumber, holiday mode, the other side of the Atlantic, we might all be going to die in a horrific nuclear holocaust, which is good, with um, Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump having this, like, weird war of words. I've actually really disappointed myself this week by working out... Did you ever have at school, in, like, history lessons, when uh, your teacher was telling you about the 80s and how they thought they were all going to die tomorrow in, like, a Cold War nuclear winter? And they just like wouldn't do their homework and stuff because they were like, what's the point? Instead, I'm going to go to the pub with my mates because this could be like the last hours <laughs> on earth. I think this week I found out about myself that it, with the prospect of nuclear war on the cards, I just, I just go to work. Keep on trying. I, I just like continue the drudgery. Mm. I, don't, I don't really change my... I'm a creature of habit. Yeah. But, but, um, it's a rational response to an irrational world, my friend. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, when, when the bombs finally come, even if we have like a 
two-day warning and then at the end of this period we will definitely be nuked you will all die I think a lot of people in this country would still just turn up for work fill in the forms do the paperwork yeah. send the emails yeah well, I think it's, I would I think that's all we know what do people myself? do when they have cancer lots of people face their own personal nuclear wars you know and a lot of them just keep on trucking in lots of ways like it's just it's just life must go on what what True, shape but, can life um, ever have except just what it what who you are and what you do I guess it harks back to the, that pre-election question time where a lot of like angry red-faced men were haranguing Corbyn for refusing to say that he would press the button and slaughter millions of innocent people in a nuclear war. Feels like now we have two of those people, one in the White House and one like leading the situation in Pyongyang. But um, yeah, I'm going to put it out to, to, to the panel here, Gav Haynes and Sam Chris. Would you, in a nuclear war situation, press the button? Um, I, I mean, I guess it depends on the button. If we're talking about the um, the glorious people's red button of the Democratic People's Republic of, of Korea, then I would, in a heartbeat, press the anti-imperialist button uh, and, uh, and and secure victory for working peoples across the world. If, on the other hand, we're talking about the uh, Anglo-American imperialist button of doom, then absolutely not. Under no circumstances would I press the button. Uh, it would be morally unconscionable. Welcome to the British Dream Podcast, the only podcast that shows full solidarity with the People's Republic of Glorious, <laughs> glorious, <laughs> glorious. <laughs> that's, that's ironic for you, but... Uh, Gav? Well, uh, I guess it would depend on which button, uh, mayonnaise or tomato ketchup. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's what I just said. Yeah. People's tomato ketchup. Um, I, uh, I mean, would I press the button? Well, of course I'd press the bloody button. Like That's the whole point of the button, isn't it? That's why we're spending all this money on this stuff. And if you refuse... <laughs> Put it this way, I would always in interview situations tell people that yes, I would push the button because that is the point of nuclear deterrence. So Gav Haynes is saying, damn right, I'm tough enough. Damn right, I'm tough enough. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I agree. You know, like uh, if you buy some, some steak knives uh, and you don't stab someone with them, then you've just wasted the money. What about Theresa May? I mean, I think Britain has said it wouldn't back America in such a war. Uh, should we feel heartened that we're not going to join the nuclear onslaught? Well, it's nice that she gave an easy answer to an entirely hypothetical question. I mean, the, the point is that there are about you know 20 or 30 steps down the road before we get to the, the point where Britain might be drawn into any such conflict. Um, and to say, no, we're out now is, is nothing very declarative. Um, you know, we, we can barely even begin to sketch the, the circumstances that might come down the road in a few months or a few years' time. I mean, we're, we're not in North Korea's range, are we? Um, good, good. Yeah, yeah. So we're just going to die slowly from nuclear winter. But uh, at that point, there is going to be no America. So, I mean, you know, why, why would we need to have any loyalty to them whatsoever? On a slightly serious point, one of the kind of grim things I've seen is like people being like, oh, hey, now, hey, 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 let, let's calm down on this nuclear war thing. South Koreans might get hurt. Mm. It's just like, oh, yes, like slaughter the, the North Koreans. The human like, Koreans might yeah, get they're, hurt. They're yeah, they're not innocent because they live in a, like, a socialist dictatorship. But the South Koreans, who live in a sort of pro-American dictatorship, they can't get hurt. Everyone is going to get very hurt. I mean, I <laughs> gather there, uh, aside from all the artillery they got pointed at, at Seoul, there is some dam uh, just outside the DMZ on the northern side that is rigged to blow if there's any invasion and will flood Seoul immediately. <laughs> so, hell, man. Whoops. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really could all be over in a couple of weeks. The level of just artillery there is in the in the peninsula. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, like you do see a lot of people talking about you know the possible casualties in South Korea and Japan and the United States and even like Russia and China. Uh, 
the idea that North Koreans might have families who don't want them to die doesn't really seem to emerge in the discourse at the moment. I mean, people, I don't know, people seem to have a very strange idea of North Korea in which, you know, like uh, everyone has maybe a chip in their brain that controls their movements or something. Um, you know, it. I, I have friends who've been there. It, it, it is an actual country where people have normal lives. To the extent that they don't deserve to be killed in a nuclear... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, would, I would say that murdering everyone in North Korea because uh, their president is a funny fat guy is probably not the best humanitarian approach. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Gav. You're the most radioactive we've ever had. The British Dream was produced by Sam Bonham at Rethink Audio. We'll be back in a month, probably. Stay positive.